Hey there. The holidays are here, so it's good to know Fred Meyer can save you some time with free pickup on all your fresh favorites. Whether your traditions call for a hearty helping of juicy ham, ample apple pie, or Aunt Sue's legendary twice-stuffed stuffing, Fred Meyer has got you covered. So order for free pickup at fredmeyer.com or the app and get more time to get your holiday on when you grab your groceries curbside. Fred Meyer, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Welcome to the Everyday Mindfulness Show, where we educate and inspire people to live fuller lives through mindful practices. Let's get started with your host, New York Times contributor, leadership advisor, sought-after keynote speaker, the author of the Amazon hot new release, Everyday Mindfulness from Chaos to Calm in a Crazy World. She's smart, strong, sassy, and a trendsetter in the field of mindful leadership. Your host, Holly Duckworth. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Everyday Mindfulness Show. We have a very special guest joining us today. Ina Hazan is in private practice and works as the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Many of you may know I have set an intention that we want to bring more research and data and scientists into this conversation about how can we apply mindfulness every day. And you know, if you set an intention, those people show up in your world. And Ina and I connected, and she has written a fantastic book we're going to talk about a little later in the show, Biofeedback and Mindfulness in Everyday Life. Ina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Holly. Well, it's really fun to bring someone with your depth of experience to the show. And the book is like 350 pages. And I told you from the beginning, I said, we're going to have to do a whole month of shows on this. So for the purpose of today's conversation, to give you, the listener, a really deep and needy experience of the book, we're going to focus on two areas, this mindfulness-based skills, chapter nine, and stress and performance. But before we get to that, I just want to know, how does one connect to this, this research and this experience? You know, we don't, we don't come out of the room and say, we're going to go to Harvard Business School, or do we? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think we all have our goals, right? And some people do come out of the room and decide that that's going to be their goal, and that's what they're going to work towards. Uh, but the idea is to figure out what is your goal in life? Um, and to set an intention um, and figure out how are you going to get there uh, and then allow yourself to get there mindfully because even though you have a plan and you have a goal uh, and you'd like that plan to play out nice and smooth and that life does not ever work that way. There is always stuff that happens. There's bumps in you know, all sorts of challenges that come um, on the road towards achieving those goals. And when we use mindfulness skills in those situations, we can achieve uh, our, those goals by being resilient, overcoming the challenges and getting us to where it, uh, we need to go rather than giving up and saying, oh no, this is too hard. So you're a researcher and a real person. How, how did your mindfulness path grow and evolve and change and bring you to this place? Well, uh, I am a clinical psychologist and when I was in graduate school tra uh, in training, uh, I came across, I, I was a uh, uh, working with people with various psychophysiological disorders, anxiety, chronic pain, migraines, uh, high blood pressure, things like that. Um, and I discovered this wonderful 
tool of biofeedback, uh, which is the ability for us to learn about our psychophysiological functioning, um, seeing the uh, physiological function of our bodies displayed right in front of us, and then being able to make helpful changes. Uh, so biofeedback was incredibly helpful for, uh, for my clients, uh, for those for whom medical and um, other kinds of psychological interventions were not successful. Um, but even with biofeedback, I find myself um, be, sometimes being stuck, and my clients sometimes found themselves being stuck um, when they try to uh, control things that were outside of their control, um, such as their thoughts, their feelings, you know, their physiological experience in the present moment. Um, and as I was uh, trying to figure out how do we get unstuck, I was introduced to mindfulness. And that was both life-changing and career-changing uh, because I now had a way to help my clients and myself to get unstuck uh, by simply giving up the effort to do something that is not under our control, uh, by giving up the effort to stop um, trying to uh, you know, be perfect or stop trying to change how we feel or think in the moment or rather focus our efforts on things that we do have the ability to change. Uh, and that is how do we respond to those thoughts, feelings, physiological sensations in a helpful way. So I've had some really great interviews with people. You use the idea, you know, and, and I learned about mindfulness. You know, mindfulness is becoming mainstream. Mm -hmm. How did mindfulness show up for you? And what's your definition of mindfulness? Because I think that's part of what's making it a little woo-woo for people, but also really giving us the opportunity as researchers and professionals to start getting the word out on what this is and what it isn't and how it can make a big difference in your life. Absolutely. Mindfulness um, has become quite um, the buzzword, um, and I think for a good reason, because it makes a really big difference in people's lives. Um, so for me, um, mindfulness is the ability to uh, become aware of the pre-verbal experience uh, the, at the level of sensation in the present moment, accepting it just as it is. Uh, so this means allowing our sensations to be before words, judgments, or evaluations come into play. Um, before our minds uh, get in gear and start figuring out what is this moment all about, just allowing the moment to be. And then this kind of awareness gives us the ability to pause and giving ourselves then opportunity to respond to the present experience in the most um, helpful way without getting stuck in then helpful efforts to control the uncontrollable. So as we continue to educate the world on mind mindfulness, one, one area that things sometimes get a little messy is this idea of mindfulness and meditation. Mm. What, are those the same thing? Are they a different thing? How does your, um, your research and your experience relate or not relate these two concepts? Okay, excellent, really excellent question. Mindfulness is a way of being in the present moment, non-judgmentally accepting, uh, allowing the moment to be as it is. That's what mindfulness is. Um, and meditation um, is a practice of being in the present moment. And meditation does not have to be mindfulness meditation. There are various uh, kinds of meditations out there. Uh, you know, there's transcendental meditation, there's med Zen meditation. Um, they're all different kinds of meditation that involve some form of being um, in the present moment with ourselves, but there, there are differences between different kinds of meditation. Uh, mindfulness does not mean meditation. We can be mindful in the moment, the, you know, the way it is right now uh, without ever meditating. We can learn to live mindfully without ever meditating. I 
do think that including meditation in our lives uh, is really helpful, um, but it is not necessary, you know, especially for people who feel like, well, meditation is not for me. Does it mean that I can't use mindfulness skills in my life? You absolutely can. There are ways to be mindful um, in the moment to help you deal with difficult moments uh, without necessarily turning to meditation. Well, and that's what this show is about, is, is how to do that. And so one of the questions that came up as I was, was researching and preparing for the interview is, is I guess, if I'm understanding correctly, biofeedback is this process of electronic monitoring of my body's function, like what my brain is doing. And then through these skills, learning how to train either my heart or my brain or my muscles in a different way. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to use the, the biofeedback and the mindfulness, do I have to have like a machine or something? Am I like always monitoring? Like um, where we're more people I think will do mindfulness if they have data and research, but yet mm -hmm. they're sort of not. So how does that work? In order, for, in, in order for us to do true biofeedback, we do have to have an instrument of some sort. Now, the nice thing is that the instrument does not have to be terribly complicated and it doesn't have to be very fancy. It can be um, as simple um, as a piece of chocolate. Uh, we can learn to warm up our hands by melting a piece of chocolate between our fingers. Uh, that is a form of biofeedback that, you know, the melting chocolate gives us the feedback about our, our finger temperature. Um, you know, things like a thermometer, you know, if you wake up in the morning feeling terribly and you use a thermometer to figure out if you have a fever, uh, that's a simple form of biofeedback that many of us have done without even realizing it's biofeedback. Um, and then, you know, as far as doing biofeedback training, there are various instruments that are quite accessible and do not um, necessarily cost a lot and, you know, and do not require a special license to use. Um, you know, it's a, uh, there are some phone apps um, that are either free or really inexpensive that provide um, heart rate variability biofeedback. Um, there are... Um, you know, thermometers uh, that you can buy for, you know, al simple alcohol thermometers are available for, you know, 50 cents each, or you can use a, you know, there are some digital thermometers that are $20. So um, there are various ways that we can do this um, without having to invest um, a lot of money into it. There are also a lot of consumer-based heart rate variability devices that are separate devices that connects to your computer or phone that will measure and help you train your heart rate variability. There are, you know, a few hundred dollars. So again, not, um, um, a, inaccessible uh, to people and you know, not only something that clinicians can use. And then of course there are the uh, extensive, uh, uh, very uh, uh, encompassing uh, biofeedback devices that are primarily used by professionals uh, in situations where people need a little bit more help and you know, more than they can do for themselves. Well, I think that that's a, an exciting misnomer that we need to get out there more is, you know, if people are are curious maybe about mindfulness, but they're a little nervous and they do tend to be a little more data driven, your book, the tools in it, and then their own use of them may give them the opportunity to explore some of these data's, uh, data sets. So I'm curious, how does mindfulness show up in your life? You've given us lots of practices. Is there one that you like to use the most and that you find helps you be more focused, more resilient, and all of the things that you talk about delivering in this book? Hmm. Tricky question. I don't think I have a practice uh, that I like the most. It really depends on what I might need. Um, I probably find myself turning to compassion-based uh, practices a lot of the time, um, you know, both with my clients, with myself, you know, with my kids, 
um, when we find ourselves in difficult moments, when there is nothing that can be done about the moment itself, uh, and people ask me the question, well, well, you know, what do I do? You know, I, the, the, here's a the situation. There's nothing I can change about it. Um, how do I handle it? The best way to handle it is to bring kindness to yourself, bring, bring kindness to the people around you. So I, you know, if I had to pick one, <laughs> I would um, pick uh, compassion-based uh, practices. Uh, I also um, really like uh, breathing-based uh, meditations because those help me get a little bit more centered and remind my body to regulate itself better um, as I prepare for various challenges in my life. Um, those are my picks. See, that, this is what I love about the Everyday Mindfulness Show is we get to interview people and talk to people that it, this doesn't require you to sit on a yoga mat and compassion-based practices. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more in the next segment about, but it's, it's a way of recognizing that, that mindfulness has to live within the framework of your day. And you are in private practice, you're, you're there at Harvard, you're, you're working a lot of hours um, that you, you find time for it. So, so we need to all stop saying, oh, I'm too busy, I'm too busy, I'm too busy, and, and find a way. And it sounds like uh, we'll learn more, but compassion-based practice might just be 30 seconds to two minutes, right? You can absolutely do that. I mean, you can do a formal, you know, compassion-based or any other mindfulness, you know, based meditation. You can do it for 20 minutes. You can do it for 40 minutes. And it's wonderful when you can, when you can set aside time to do that. I recommend doing that when you can. Uh, but again, that's really if you can't do that, does not mean you can't practice mindfulness. You can simply change your tone of voice when you're talking to yourself uh, through a difficult moment. You can um, pay attention to the words that come out of your mouth when you're talking uh, to your colleague or your friend or your child uh, and just change the tone and change the intention of what you're trying to convey. Um, so very, very simple changes that require no additional time at all will make big changes in your overall life. Well, and I, I think it's fun. Sometimes in this conversation on mindfulness, we talk about being in the moment with non-judgment. And so that you don't have, just like you're not judging it, you don't have one practice and you use your own intuitive faculties to pick the right tool at the right time for you. I think that sometimes is a misnomer too. Well, if I don't do it exactly perfect, exactly at this time, exactly this way. So knowing that you too are evolving your practice to meet that situation is inspiring and empowering to us out here trying to do it as well. That's, um, that's wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Let's take a brief break and we'll be right back with more on the book, Biofeedback and Mindfulness in Everyday Life. The Everyday Mindfulness Show is brought to you by Leadership Solutions International. Are you hosting an upcoming conference or convention? Or looking for a speaker to provide inspiration and motivation? Would you like your audiences to know what you know as a listener of the Everyday Mindfulness Show? Check out Leadership Solutions International for more on mindful leadership keynote offerings, on-site mindfulness information centers, and trainings. So we are talking with... Ina Hazan, who is in private practice and works at the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And we have 350 pages and like 15 minutes to talk about it. And I don't even know where to begin. I, I really am so inspired by this, this chapter nine work where we're talking about what we, we alluded to in the first segment, control. Mm. You know, how control or the illusion of control can be a barrier to living 
a mindful life. And in that section, you talk about this thing, heart rate variability. Talk to us a little bit about that. All right, so heart rate variability is very simply put, the difference in time that passes from heartbeat to heartbeat. Um, it is important because it is an indicator of both our cardiovascular health um, and it is a, an important indicator of our ability to self-regulate and be resilient. It's, it basically tells us how well is your body able to adapt to the various uh, changing scenarios you know, in your life, you know, when you are uh, transitioning from meeting to meeting, you know, having to call up on different skills in different situations when you know something particularly stressful comes your way are you able to quickly uh, call up your uh, resources and meet the challenge um, heart rate variability is an indicator of our ability to do that and heart rate variability biofeedback increases our ability to uh, regulate adapt and be resilient so um, when it comes to the concept of control and heart rate variability, uh, you know, very often people talk about, well, about controlling your heart rate, right? And we'll probably hear this, uh, um, you know, this uh, phrase all the time. Well, I got to control my heart rate, right? In order for me to, you know, do my best in the situation, I got to, you know, got to control my body, got to control my heart rate, got to bring it down. Um, and it's, I guess the good news is that we don't have to do that. The bad news is we, we don't really have that much control, but the good news is we don't actually need it. Uh, in our efforts to control the present moment, whether it be our heart rate uh, or whether it be our thoughts and feelings, uh, we end up getting stuck because we, uh, you know, think about it this way. Uh, if somebody told you right now, um, you know, don't think about the white bear, just do your best and don't think about it. There is the white bear right in front of you. Right? Is, yes. That's right. There's just, we just can't do that. Or if you tell ourselves, bring your heart rate down right now. I, we can't do that. The more we try, um, the more white bears we have running around our minds and perhaps the higher our heart rate gets and the more um, stressed out we feel. So what we need to focus on is what is under our control. You know, with heart rate variability, uh, what is under our control is the training uh, using, um, time in our uh, just everyday lives at neutral times, not when you are at a time of particular distress, uh, to do some heart rate variability uh, training, either using a biofeedback device or uh, using the steps that I outline in my book where you can do heart rate variability uh, training uh, without an actual device. It wouldn't be biofeedback, but you can still train your body uh, to become more resilient without a device. Um, then at times of stress, when you, you can just allow your body to do what it knows how to do, because you've already done all that training and your body is going to be able to rise to the challenge and help you be more, more adaptable and more resilient without having to control the present moment. Yeah, I smiled when I got to page 142. Trying to relax is an oxymoron. <laughs> Thank you. I, yes. I, you know, I catch my clients saying that all the time and I catch myself, you know, saying that, you know, I'm trying to relax wait a second, what am I actually trying to do here? And is this even possible? Yeah, because, you know, when we, when we try to relax, um, the trying involves activation of the, our uh, stress system, the sympathetic nervous system, and relaxation involves activation of the relaxation system or the parasympathetic nervous system. And we're, uh, the, both of those uh, uh, parts of the nervous system cannot be dominant at the same time, right? So what we're trying to do is tell our body, okay, try, and, you know, the sympathetic nervous system activates, and then we go relax, and that would require the parasympathetic nervous system to, to activate. So the body goes, huh? I don't know how to do that. What are you, what are you asking me to do here? So we end up in the futile fight at trying to do something that is not possible. Well, and that's why I loved this this next little part, which was 
unfortunately, I think we live in a world of numbing ourselves and and there's a variety of ways ways to do that and and then you know we're not emotional and we don't feel and we're just running to the next and the next and the next and the next and i love the the contrast here um there's a chart where you talk about you know we have to start owning our emotions and and taking some time to to connect to them and and label them and you know often we learn we're happy or we're sad we're we're joyful or we're mad, like, like extremes. But you, you, this is the first research that I've really read in depth around the power of finding a way to label your emotions in a neutral way. And if we're going to be mindful, practice the presence in the moment with non-judgment, then we need to maybe find some ways to be neutral in our emotions. Talk, talk about how did you get to that and, and how can somebody maybe use that skill? Mm-hmm. Um. Sometimes when somebody asks me, well, if you have to, you know, if you have to tell me only one skill, you know, there's only one mindfulness skill you would teach me. Labeling is usually it. While I prefer to teach people way more than one skill, and I very much encourage people to use more than one. But you know, if it has to be one, this is probably it. And the reason for it is because labeling actually changes the patterns of activation in the brain at times of difficulty. Um, and uh, we know this through uh, imaging studies that are, you know, there's quite a few of them at this point supporting the same idea. Uh, what happens typically in intensely emotional situations is the fight or flight center of the brain called the amygdala becomes very active. Uh, and the amygdala kind of takes over. Uh, the amygdala's job is to keep us safe uh, without regard for the consequences, just get the heck out and then think about uh, the consequences later. Um, so oftentimes when we are, find ourselves in intense uh, emotions, amygdala takes over and we feel like we have no control of our actions, which is kind of true because in that situation, the amygdala takes over and then the thinking part of the brain, the part of the brain that normally helps us make decisions and figure out how to respond, the prefrontal cortex becomes less active. So there's, we're quite literally not in control of, what, uh, of our response. So uh, when we are able to give a name or label our emotions, that pattern of activation reverses. Uh, Amygdala, the fight or flight center of the brain becomes less active. uh, And the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that's responsible for choosing our actions becomes more active. Um, And that then gives us the ability to pause and figure out how to respond because we're quite literally activating the part of the brain that is able to help us figure out how to respond. Now the, tone of the label, you know, as, as you said, a neutral way of naming our experience is particularly important because it, we don't want to um, name our experience, oh, you know, there is that ridiculous thinking again, right? Or here's me being an idiot again. That's not going to help, right? So the idea is to uh, uh, use a, a brief, non-judgmental, descriptive label. So something like, um, you know, here's anxiety or here is uncertainty or, you know, here's unhelpful thinking. Um, something that if you were to tell me, this is my experience, if you were to tell me I am experiencing uncertainty, I would know exactly what what you mean. If you were to tell me, you know, I'm just being an idiot, I really don't know what that means, right? Uh, So it's not helpful um, and it's not uh, descriptive and it's not going to uh, reverse that pattern and helpful pattern of activation in the brain, right? Whereas if we use neutral uh, descriptors of our experience that other people can easily understand, we, pro- we give ourselves the benefit of uh, activating the helpful part uh, of the brain and enabling us to choose a response in a difficult moment. Well, and this is a perfect time to remind people, and I was so glad to see it in your scientific research coming from you, this is a practice. Mm-hmm. 
and choosing that word, sometimes you're going to still pick the, the, the heavy negative word, or you're still going to pick the positive word. That this, this tool of you know, biofeedback and mindfulness invites us the opportunity to, to practice and recognizing the power of our words. And in, in this book, you give us a lot of words to think about. And sometimes those are words that are not commonly in our vocabulary. Like we talked in the first segment, this idea of compassion uh, probably is something we can learn a little bit more about <laughs> and, and having compassion for yourself. Hmm. Absolutely. Um, compassion is something we tend to have a little bit less difficulty experiencing for others than we do for ourselves. Uh, the idea of self-compassion uh, for some people just like quite literally makes their skin crawl. Like I, I don't know what that means. I don't know how to do it. It does not seem acceptable. That seems just wrong, right? Um, and yet, if we think about it, if we are not able to be kind to ourselves, we actually deprive ourselves of the ability to be kinder uh, to others. Um, the best example I can think of is, you know, when you're on an airplane and, you know, when the flight attendants give you the pre-flight spiel, um, they always say, if an oxygen mask comes down, put it on yourself first and only then help um, others around you, no matter whether it's a three-month-old baby or a 97-year-old grandmother, you put the oxygen mask on yourself first, because if you cannot breathe, you're absolutely no help to anyone else. Uh, same idea with kindness and compassion. If we are not taking care of ourselves, if we are not uh, being kind uh, to ourselves, uh, we are not going to be of any use to our children, to our parents, to our grandparents, to our coworkers, to anybody else in our lives, uh, because we're going to deplete ourselves. And uh, we, when we can't breathe, whether physically or metaphorically, uh, we can't help others. You know, there's so much we, we can talk about, and especially how this relates to the stress that people people are are under. And I can't I can't let the show go without at least talking a little bit about this acronym. We love acronyms on the show, and mm -hmm. I, I think this is really quite fun because it's something people can remember. And it's this this word flare. And you talk about feel. We just gave people sort of some thoughts about you know finding neutral ways to label your emotions. That's L, F. So we're going F-L-A-R-E, feel, label, allow, respond, and expand your awareness. That, that's, you, you've got so many great tools in the book, but I love this one because it, it ties a few of them together. Can you leave our listeners with what that is and how they might use it in a stressful, everyday mindful situation where they want to start practicing more biofeedback and mindfulness? Absolutely, thank you for asking that. Um, when we encounter a difficult situation, uh, we have to figure out what is under our control and what is not under our control, and how can we implement some of those actions that are under our control. So acronym FLARE uh, takes you through every one of these steps. F standing for feel, and that's just the pre-verbal awareness, just the experience itself before words, uh, before judgments, just what is going on right now, what do I feel? Labeling, uh, giving a brief, non-judgmental label uh, to the experience, which then uh, reverses the pattern of activation in your brain and helping you uh, activate the part of the brain that uh, will enable you to actually make a choice for how to respond. Um, a stands for allowing, and that's giving up the feudal struggle to control what is not under your control, which is your thoughts, feelings, uh, uh, the particular instances of the situation, other people's behavior, things like that. 
Uh, so we allow things to be because they're not under our control. Our thoughts and feelings are not under our control. We have no choice but to allow them to be because if we try to fight with them, we are inevitably going to get stuck um, and will not be able to respond uh, to the difficult situation in a helpful way because our resources are going to be dedicated to something that is simply not going to happen. Um, then, you know, as our brains are optimally activated and as we've given up the fight with something that is not under our control, we can then move on to the R, which is um, choosing a response, not a reaction, but a response, um, one that comes uh, out of thinking through what is in our best interest. And that might be certain biofeedback skills, such as uh, certain breathing practices or the ability to release your muscles. Uh, or it may be mindfulness-based practices, such as grounding yourself in the present moment, uh, using uh, compassion practices for yourself or others, uh, or simply just problem-solving strategies you know, that apply to the particular problem in the moment. Um, and then, you know, as we've decided on our course of action, what, how are we going to respond? Um, expanding awareness to the full spectrum of our experience. Uh, difficult experiences often focus us in so much on uh, this is what's going on and this is this bad thing and it takes over our awareness. And when we're stuck in a difficult experience, when it's all of our experience, it is really difficult to make sense of it. It is really difficult to figure out what to do about it. Um, and it is really difficult to get unstuck. So by expanding awareness, we're taking a step back and recognizing this, yes, there is this difficult experience. It is right here. And, you know, we're not able to change it right this moment. But other than this difficult experience, there's other things going on. There is a person in front of me. There is the sky overhead. You know, there is my breath. There is the heartbeat. Uh, you know, there is my thought about dinner. You know, there's a rumbling in my stomach or itchy nose. There's all, all, all sorts of other things going on other than this difficult experience. So we're just zooming out, allowing the difficult experience to become a part of our experience rather than all of our experience. Um, and that allows us then to continue implementing our chosen response and moving on uh, and performing at our best in a difficult situation. Well, I love that expanding awareness too, because it always invites us back to this remembrance that on some level, we're like all in this together. Absolutely. And, you know, unfortunately, our world is going through some good and some interesting things. And when we use that last expanding awareness, it often invites us to find somebody to help us or find somebody we can help and, and continue this mindfulness spiral in a good and positive way. When we talked in the first segment, we talked a little bit about biofeedback and devices. And I want to let our listeners know, if you're interested in knowing more about that, you in the back of the book detail a sample list of these devices. And that's just another great reason to get the book. So how do people get a copy of the book? Um, well, it's easily available online. Uh, you can get it on a Norton website, um, or you can get, get it on Amazon. Those are probably your simplest, most accessible ways. Fantastic. Well, are there any other bits of research, wisdom, or just life in inspiration that you'd love to share with our listeners before we get, let you get back to your practice? Um, certainly. I'd like to encourage people to do what they can to bring this, these skills into their lives uh, and start small. Uh, we can benefit for, from every little bit of mindfulness or biofeedback practice. Uh, if, if what you can do is dedicate two minutes a day, that's great. If all you can do is drink your mind, you know, morning cup of coffee mindfully, that is awesome. Uh, if, if you can, all you can do is take, you know, five minutes at the end of the day to breathe. That's amazing. Whatever you can do 
is going to benefit you. And then once you have a practice that's established, you know, if it's two or three or five minutes, you can gradually start building on that if that feels like it's going to be helpful to you. Um, but don't ever feel like because you can dedicate a whole chunk of time to this, that it's not worth trying. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. Ina, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. If there's anything we can do to help you out or expand your work in the world, never hesitate to ask. Remember, mindful matters and so do you. Thank you for joining us for today's show. For more mindfulness every day, visit everydaymindfulnessshow.com and download the three-day challenge and experience the ABCs of mindfulness. Mm-hmm.